Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Well, wherever you are across the street or around the world, so glad to have you as we continue to do what we always try to do, turn down the noise, get the things that matter, discern the times we live in, kind of get past all that craziness and see what's going on in the world around us. Let's start right there because there was a whole lot of crazy over the Christmas holiday and the repercussions and fallout thereof continues. Southwest Airlines had an absolute total meltdown. You probably saw it on the news. Now, there's a couple things going on here that we need to address, but I want to start big picture. Then we'll come back to Southwest and take it from that angle. Here's the thing. Southwest Airlines is still a discount carrier, even as big as they get. Why do I call it a discount carrier? Because just that. They discount, they cut prices, they cut corners, they do things the other airlines don't to get their prices down to get you to go. Now, some of those things are obvious, the way they charge, the way they do things, some of them are not obvious, like their interline agreements. If you don't know what an interline agreement is, that's the agreements between the airlines that a paying customer from one airline can be transferred or their baggage can be transferred or whatever the case may be to another airline. They don't have those agreements. So when Southwest's entire system goes down, they can't just put a bag on the next thing smoking wherever it's going. Those baggage just stop. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I did transportation for the better part of 15 years before I started writing and doing media. And a good decade of that was doing air transportation. So I know a little bit about what I'm talking about here. So let me just lay it out to you this way. I've done a lot of flying and a lot of traveling. I never fly Southwest. Um, I think I did once, uh, when I was in the military because they booked it that way. But if I'm paying, I never fly Southwest. Why? Because of this right here. I know how they operate. Their systems have been bad for a long time. It's been well known people that know anything about the business of aviation and moving people and transportation, their systems were antiquated and it's not particularly well run. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, they're still trying to run Southwest as if it was southwest of 20 years ago when it's a third of the size that it is now. This kind of a disaster was inevitable because they haven't upgraded their systems, they haven't upgraded their software, their management hasn't kept up, they have the same staffing and hiring problems everybody else does, and it created a bomb that went off. And then when you throw in the fact that they don't have interline agreements and other things, they don't have any friends to phone to try to bail them out when almost all of their own flights ground to a halt. I never flew southwest because to me... I needed some more security than what I knew the underpinnings of their organization would give me. And sure, you probably got away with it for years, but that one time when you really needed it over Christmas break, what happened? To me, that's the money. That's why I don't usually fly discount airlines and low fare carriers. It's a trade-off. If you do do it, 
for God's sakes, go carry on only. Don't let them handle your bags. But most of the time, you may be okay. Make an informed decision is the point here. The reason I bring up informed decisions, it's a trade-off. You're getting a cheaper ticket. You're getting less services. Here's the problem. We are now into the next phase of the story of do something. And everybody's demanding that somebody do something. And no sooner does do something come out of your mouth than somebody starts looking to the federal government to do that do something because, of course, we got to bring the hammer every time we need to get rid of a fly. So there's been a couple different layers of this. A lot of people are pointing towards Pete Buttigieg and not just Republicans, the uh, progressive friends of ours, the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. They're all over Pete Buttigieg talking about how he was unqualified for the post and why did you let this happen? That's a little unfair, although I do agree that he was put there for political reasons, not because he knew anything about transportation. Uh, here's the thing, folks. Have we not learned our lesson yet? Whether it was COVID, uh, whether it was anything else over the last however long you've been alive and been an American and followed politics, when has yelling do something ever actually done something good? Oh, they can do things. Part of the problem with aviation in America is not that it's not regulated enough, it's regulated to the gills. And a lot of those regulations are from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They're outdated, antiquated, and need updating. What is needed here is not the sledgehammer of government to come in and do something. Whatever they do will probably make the next thing worse. Imagine if they come in and start dictating which systems and which software upgrades a company needs to do. Well, that's what needs fixed here. Yes, I understand that, but understand how regulation works. If they regulate a specific kind of software fix, by the time they actually get it implemented, the next software thing's already out. See the problem? It's kind of like back when they first started putting computers in schools. They forgot that those computers would be out to date by the time they actually got them all in the system. Then you got to pay somebody to fix them. Then you got to replace them. Before you just do something, you need to think these things out. Yes, Southwest made their own mess. They should have major repercussions. The Most of the leadership should probably be examined very closely, if not out of jobs, for allowing this to happen, because they did allow this to happen. This has been building over a long time. Look, even 20 years ago when I was in the Air Force, we joked about how Southwest did things on the cut rate, okay? These were known issues. They knew. It finally blew up on them. Everybody knew this was going to happen eventually. But bringing in the sledgehammer of government or just blaming a certain government official or just thinking that your political priors applied to this particular situation is going to fix it is not the answer. Didn't COVID teach us anything? We can rain money down on a problem. We can move all kinds of regulatory hurdles. But if we don't think them through, do we really accomplish anything? So it is with the Southwest thing. There's a lot of viral video and a lot of pressure for the government to do something. They love to do something. They'll do what they want to do, not just solve the problem you think they will when you start demanding do something. Be careful summoning forth the big powerful being that is the federal government to fix your problem of the moment. And as bad as the Southwest thing was, it was a problem of the moment. And just business-wise, they're going to have to fix it now because they don't want to take another hit the way they just did. Summoning government to fix it? probably going to create a couple more monsters down the road that you ain't going to like. That's how the airline industry got in the mess it is right now. But we got to have an adult conversation to get through that sort of thing. I don't think the do something people are in the mood for that. So we should try to temper them and let's not do anything rash in the moment just because of a viral video and because of upset travelers that might make the next 10 or 15 years of air travel even worse. 
more hotel right after this. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, if you've read my writings or listened to this program, you know I am no big fan of Elon Musk. I've been very critical of him on a lot of levels. I praise him on some things. I think the SpaceX stuff is really cool and actually really important for humanity as a whole. But I try to be a little bit nuanced, even though I don't particularly care for the man at all. And I think he's a lot of things that we can't say with FCC guidelines. I do try to be somewhat fair here. There's an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times that's getting some run. I'll just read you the headline, op-ed, Los Angeles Times. Elon Musk is making me want to sell my Tesla. Oh, dear. The byline, uh, the subheading, I bought a Tesla to help the environment. Now I'm embarrassed to drive it. Folks, both of these are a you problem. If you bought a Tesla just to show how much you care about the environment, that's a you problem. If your Tesla makes you feel embarrassed because Elon Musk owns Tesla and runs it, that's also a you problem. If you did something as a pose for the moment and for other people, don't be surprised when it goes out of style if your pose turns around and looks really, really ridiculous. That's what's happened here. This isn't an outlier either, by the way. Let's just look through some of these uh, other op-eds and pieces from the LA Times recently. I'm not picking on the LA Times. Other people do this too. This is just one example. December 18th. Is Elon Musk trying to get Republicans to buy Teslas? September 15th. Op-ed. Think bigger. Switch to electric cars isn't enough, especially with Elon Musk. November 10th. Also LA Times. California liberals bought Teslas and created Elon Musk. Oops. Uh, folks. Look, here's what happens with folks like Elon Musk. And I'm critical of him. I'm very critical of him. Uh, I think what he's doing is a train wreck in a lot of ways. He's also become the avatar. He's the featured person of the day on Twitter, we call it. Kind of almost a Trump replacement in the news media cycle. You need this main character to bounce everything off of to keep the cycle going. Elon Musk didn't make you buy anything. Elon Musk doesn't really affect your life whatsoever other than what you allow him to. Yes, he is in charge of Twitter and kind of making a hash of it. My Twitter's been barely usable the last couple of days for whatever reason because of they won't quit tinkering with the dang thing. But other than that, he doesn't affect your life any more than you let him. Are you projecting stuff on Elon Musk or are you seeing him for the person he is? We have a lot of book on him, good and bad. He's had successes. He's had failures. He's had some really ugly stuff. Remember the cave diver that he called a pedo because he didn't like his stupid submarine idea? You've seen how he's treated critics the way he's gone after journalists to try to cover him. No, he's not a very good person, but we got book on him. It's not my opinion. You can go look it up. 
but don't make him an avatar for your life. If you're buying a car because of a cause or something like this, that's fine. But don't be surprised if that cause that is fashionable in the moment becomes unfashionable. That's why they call them trends. That's why they call them fads. If you want to buy an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle or whatever else because you're concerned about the environment, by God, go do it. And I wish you the joy of it. But that doesn't mean we're required to give you social media points and praise you to high heaven for it. Nor are we going to feel sorry for you if you doing that just for the pose of it doesn't work out down the road. Again, if you buy a Tesla to try to show off to your friends and Elon Musk now makes that unpalatable to you, both of those are you problems. They need to be solved, first and foremost, by you. We're not required to do anything. Except watch. Try really hard not to laugh. That'd be impolite. More hard tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's the most appeared guy in the history of this program because he's that smart. Way smarter than me. But he explains it so well, even I can understand it. That's why we keep having him back. Our scientist friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. How are you, sir? I am good. How are you today? I'm doing well. All right. Let's talk some science to end the years out. We've done some lists. We've done some best films there. You did on Ordinary-Times.com. We'll link to it. You did the top 10 science stories. And science things and tech things from the year 2022. How was it the year 2022 for science? 2022 was an amazing year for science. Uh, one of the things that's kind of indicative of one of the things that's kind of unique to science is you have a tendency for things to take a long time and then pay off all at the same time. Like I, as a as a scientist, I've had years where I was barely publishing anything. I'd hear from supervisors, "Why aren't you publishing?" And then the next year, I'd publish like ten papers because a whole bunch of projects came to a came to a conclusion at once. And that's what 2022 was like. We had a lot of long term projects, things that have been going for years or decades, suddenly pay off. We had Artemis go to the moon, return to the moon, and set up the a potential human landing in a couple of years. Uh, that's been in the progress for over a decade or more. We had JDWST, which I named as the biggest science story of the year. That's been in the works for 25 years and finally deployed and started taking data this year. This year, um, we had a lot of progress on vaccines. That is the culmination of decades worth of work. We had the uh, fusion ignition, uh, where we had a self-sustaining fusion reaction that was putting out more energy than it was taking in. That's the result of decades worth of work by the National Ignition Facility. So it was just a year where a lot of these long-term projects came to fruition and made uh, amazing amounts of progress and uh, had some really wonderful results. Now, why is that? Is it a funding thing? Is it uh, these are 10-year projects? These are five-year projects? These are 15-year projects? I know the space stuff, it takes a while for this stuff to get into place and to get R&D, but why is it that it seems to go in a cycle like that? I, I think just... Um, it's just the nature of the beast that the way funding tends to work out, the way 
scientific breakthroughs tend to happen. You tend to get these uh, these waves of breakthroughs and then periods of time where people are trying to figure things out and so forth, and then another wave of breakthroughs. The mRNA vaccines are a perfect example. This has been something that's been in the work for a couple of decades, but now that it got jump-started with the COVID-19 vaccine, we have vaccines coming out for a universal flu. We have vaccines coming out for malaria. We have vaccines coming out that can treat cancer. You know, the COVID-19, especially that pandemic, jump-started that particular technology. So a whole bunch of projects that have been in the works suddenly uh, got caught fire. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. How is a monster hole in the heart of the galaxy not number one? <laughs> we've we've known about that for a while. So the story there is that uh, the center of our galaxy, the our island of stars, the Milky Way, the center of our galaxy has a black hole in the center that uh, weighs about four million times as much as the sun. And we've suspected it was there for decades. We've had pretty direct evidence of it for years. And uh, this was the first time we got actual images of it, thanks to the Event Horizon Telescope, which combines radio telescopes all over the world to get very high resolution images. And it's just a fantastic result. But the year was just so strong with scientific results that you know it just made the top 10. Going down the top 10, that's your 10, number nine. I remember when President Obama put Joe Biden in charge of curing cancer. That didn't happen. Cancer vaccines made progress. You've got that at number nine. <laughs> yeah, we've had a few um, vaccines that are stimulating the immune response to deal with cancer. Now, the efficacy rate is still pretty low. Um, but when you're talking about cancer, any efficacy is, is going to be uh, very good. But the promise that you could wire someone's immune system to attack a cancer in their body and deal with it like it's an infection is very promising. Cancer, we've been on a cure for cancer since Nixon, really. I think he was the first one to declare a war on cancer. And people who do research in this will tell you that cancer is not just one thing, it's many things. And there's no, not never gonna be one cure that addresses all of it. You know, what causes lung cancer, what causes breast cancer, what causes colon cancer, these are different things and have to be addressed in different ways. But the potential to have a platform where you can address multiple different kinds of cancer and probably not anywhere close to 100% effectiveness, but with enough effectiveness to save thousands of lives, that is very promising. So uh, universal flu vaccines show promise. This one's at number eight. Has this one been damaged by all the COVID stuff? I think people are suspicious a little bit of mRNA vaccines, and we can talk about that, the anti-vax stuff later if you want. But there has been not as much uptake of flu vaccines generally as there should be. I think a lot of people tend to think of the flu as mild because I talked to a doctor once who said people tell me they got the flu and they didn't get it. Then they say, oh, I had the worst flu of my life. He's like, now you had the flu. You know, this is a very serious illness. I mean, we've had uh, mutual friends get very sick with this. Um, so I don't know why people take it so lightly as they do. But a universal flu vaccine, basically every year, scientists have to guess what the flu strain is going to be, the dominant flu strain. And they put out a vaccine for that one. And even when they get it wrong, it does increase your resistance. It does increase, decrease the likelihood that you will go to the hospital or, God forbid, die of flu. But if you had a universal vaccine that can attack things that all flu strains have in common, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. You could just put out the same vaccine every year, maybe even combined with a COVID vaccine, and everyone would be taken care of. So that's that's a big hope, and there's a lot of been a lot of progress in that in the last couple of years.
Okay, that's the science side of it. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. The problem, the problem is that the COVID has so warped this. Now we've got measles outbreaks all over the place. Now we've got other communicable diseases because these folks have gone so far the other way. And now they're thinking all vaccines are bad because of the non-scientific panic nonsense about the COVID vaccines. This is a problem. So you're all excited about this. But if I try to just put something out on social media about universal flu vaccines, people are going to lose their minds. This is a bridged gap that has opened up because of the way COVID was covered that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah. And I wish I had a solution to that. I mean, what, what's happened with the anti-vax stuff is the anti-vax stuff has sort of been bubbling away for about 25 years. It was mainly stimulated by a fraudulent study that claimed that vaccines cause autism. And I've tangled with them for a number of years because to me, childhood vaccines are one of the most glorious inventions in history. You know, most people before the 20th century had the experience of burying a child who died of a communicable disease of measles or something like that. And that's something that in the developed world is is rare. And that's mainly thanks to vaccines. And it was also that when they were falsely claiming that vaccines cause autism, I kind of got offended that they acted as the as if autism was like the worst thing that could happen to someone. I mean, you've had Eric Michael Garcia on your show a few times, and he's written a book, We Are Not Broken, about how you know autistic people are functional. They're you know normal people. You don't have to like live in terror that of someone having autism. And so that was an ugly strain that emerged in that. What happened was that you had this pandemic, so that disrupted a lot of people, created a lot of panic and a situation where people were disrupted and sort of looking for answers. And you also had these new vaccines, which a lot of people were kind of hesitant about. I was hesitant about it. And my wife, who's a biochemist and does genetic research, she was hesitant about it. But as the results came out and it became clear that these things were effective and safe, we adopted them. But that ran headlong into a well-oiled well-prepared anti-vax movement. And it's no accident that many of the anti-vax arguments and platforms being used are the same ones that have been used for the last 25 years to advance this. Now, in this case, you also had the convergence of several other really bad factors. You had, and I won't name names so that neither you nor I get sued, but you had some grifters who figured out that running around lying about COVID, lying about the vaccines, stimulating this distrust, distrust was profitable and could get them lots of clicks and book deals and stuff like that. And you also had a political wedge that unfortunately some Republicans have embraced of saying that the COVID vaccines are bad or we should have hearings about them. And Ron DeSantis is effectively running for president and he's now convening hearings on the mRNA vaccines, even though a year ago he was boasting about how he was so effective at getting them out. And he was effective at getting them out. And it's bizarre to me because these mRNA vaccines are not only one of the greatest scientific achievements of my lifetime. I mean, we went from nothing to a usable vaccine in 18 months that is very effective and safe. And it's a, it's a miracle. And one of the architects of that was Donald Trump, a Republican. I don't give Donald Trump credit for a lot, but he embraced that idea. You know, he, he didn't come up with the ideas, but he did push them to streamline the regulations so that they could get approval really fast when these vaccines came out. He made the promises of money so they could build the facilities to manufacture the vaccines that didn't exist yet. So that once the vaccines were ready, 
they could start pumping them out in huge numbers. Uh, that's something that usually puts a couple of years delay in getting vaccines because you develop the vaccine and then you build the factory, whereas this time they were doing them at the same time. And it's a it's a miracle and it's really a bipartisan miracle and it's bizarre to see part of the country. And I don't think it's like half the country or anything like that. I think it's a mo vocal minority, but it's bizarre to see part of the country turn against these things which have saved millions of lives and hundreds of thousands of American lives. Yeah, I'll name names. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Let's yep. start with him. Uh, Business Insider actually did a list of 12 of these folks. I won't go through the whole list because these, you know, these deplorable people don't need the, the airtime of it. There's bodybuilders, there's wellness bloggers. JFK Jr. is the biggest name on here because of his name, but he's been known to be a crank. Those 12 people, and I'm, I'll link to this piece. On Facebook alone, those 12 people are responsible for 73% of the anti-vax content on the platform over the last few years when it came to COVID. This is a small minority that's gotten really loud, but the problem is they're converting people because now we have a measles outbreak, something that yep. should never happen. We've seen polio make a resurgence in certain places, something that should never happen. You know, one of the great scientific wins of the last hundred years, defeating polio, that's coming back. Um, and now the, the flu vaccine is going to be a fight every single year. Now we have school board people running under. We're not going to have vaccines to get into schools anymore. They're winning converts somewhere because it's getting worse, not better. Yeah, the, the COVID vaccine skepticism has sort of backfilled into building up skepticism of other vaccines. And it was designed not to interrupt you. That was exactly their design on it, though. They jumped yeah. on the COVID. I'm not talking about everybody because some people were just ignorant, didn't know anybody. These JFK Jr. people and those folks that have been running oh, this scam for 20, 30 years, they did this on purpose to specifically get this outcome to funnel people back into their nonsense. Is that, oh, I'm, yeah. They, I'm, saw, they saw an opportunity with a society that was, you know, everyone was kind of on edge and uneasy because we'd had a major societal disruption. There were a lot of suspicions and still suspicions about where this virus came from and so forth. And they saw an opportunity to advance their agenda. And, you know, when you're talking about measles and polio and things like that, these are well-tested vaccines that, you know, save the lives of children and save them from lifelong disabilities. I mean, Mitch McConnell has a disability because he had polio as a kid. There are still people in this world who are disabled because of polio. You know, when this broke out, my my mother, who's in her 80s, she was telling me about when she was a kid and polio outbreaks would happen and they'd shut down the pools and everyone would stay home and everyone would be terrified because of the a horrible progression of this disease. And to turn your back on this is just amazing to me. Like, even if vaccines called autism, which they do not, but even if they did, that tiny risk is is nothing compared to the major risks that you're talking about with these diseases. There's a great Penn and Teller demonstration from their old show. I can't say the name of it or repeat what they said because it uses FCC non-compliant language, but where they demonstrate the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people using uh, mangoes and bowling pins. 
And it's a, just a great demonstration of, uh, of how safe these are. And I mean, even putting the COVID-19 stuff aside, you're talking about diseases that are very infectious, very lethal, can cause lifetime disabilities. I really don't understand what's going on. You know, when the COVID, what happened was the COVID-19 vaccine mandates came out and people objected to them. We said, well, we've been mandating vaccines for a while. And I warned that this would happen. And it did. A lot of people said, well, then we shouldn't mandate those vaccines. And uh, that that ended up being what happened, that there is this movement to push back against ordinary vaccine mandates. And it's it's really distressing. Yeah, It's not a complicated issue at all. You have a right to not vaccinate yourself. You have a right not to vaccinate your child. The rest of civil society has a right to shun you for not being vaxxed because they don't get the disease that you refuse to get vaxxed for. This is not complicated. This is how all of recorded human history since we've come up with vaccine has operated. Mm-hmm. And yet people seem to think because they have Facebook and Twitter accounts, somehow those rules don't apply anymore. But it really is that simple. That's not a breach of anybody's freedom. You have a right to not be infected by a disease from somebody else. They have a right to not get the vaccine, but then you have a right as a civil society to put them over there by themselves because they're infectious. This this is not complicated. Yeah, I mean, remember Mary Mallorn, we ended up putting her in asylum because she was giving everyone cholera or, um, excuse me, um, typhoid. typhoid. And and she, to her dying day, refused to believe that this was the case and kept taking cooking jobs and killing people because she refused to believe that she could be a non-infectious spreader. And this is long established. I think the phrase that has come up in uh, like libertarian circles is your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. And, you know, you have a right to bodily integrity, but not necessarily to go into situations like public schools and so forth, where you will expose others. And there are people who cannot take the vaccine, children who cannot take the vaccine for health reasons and so forth. And the exemptions should be limited to them. What we talk about is herd immunity. If you get up to a certain percentage, the virus can't build up the reservoirs it needs to break out. And so you don't quite need 100%. But with something as infectious as measles or polio, you need pretty close. And we've seen as vaccination rates have dropped into the, even into the high 90s or low 90s that we've had outbreaks. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us, talking through the best science stories from 2022. All right, here's a big one that I've heard about all my life. We had the scandal in, I believe it was the, the mid-90s, where the guy claimed to have invented cold fusion with a mason jar on a shelf or some crazy nonsense. I forget exactly how that scam went. I've heard about nuclear cold fusion all my life. I've heard about better ways to do nuclear fusion all my life. We actually seem to have at least gotten a step forward in that field, though. Yeah. Well, cold fusion wasn't a scam. I think it was more of a mistake that they had a chemical reaction they were mistaking for a fusion reaction. But um, what they we have two approaches to creating nuclear fusion, which is what powers the sun. It's very, very difficult to create. The, previously, the, the only way we were able to create was inside nuclear weapons. But you can have a tokamak, which generates an intense magnetic field and squeezes hydrogen atoms together till they fuse into helium and, and that destroys mass and releases energy by e equals mc squared. Or you can have a laser, a 192 lasers blast a little piece of, of hydrogen and then it implodes inward and those hydrogen atoms fuse. And this year we got a breakthrough with the laser implosion technique where it became briefly for a tiny fraction of a second self-sustaining and was generating more energy than was put into it. Now that's a little bit deceptive because you have to power the laser. So the actual efficiency is much lower than that, but it's a very big step 
on the way here, especially if you can ignite this fusion and it keeps going like that, then you then you have a potential power source. Now, with the laser implosion technique, they're doing this once every seven months. You need to be doing this multiple times a second to have sustainable fusion. So it's a it's a tiny step. But a lot of the times with science, just knowing something is possible is what helps create innovations and knowing that this technique works and theoretically can generate nuclear fusion is i think going to spur a lot of innovation especially now it's going to get a lot of industries there are dozens of companies that are interested in fusion or are starting to invest in this and i think that's where we're going to see where this becomes uh, practical and commercial where they figure out all right how do we make this more efficient how do we make this cheaper how do we do this every second instead of every seven months. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Dr. Michael Siegel, certified scientist, a couple times over. Uh, his list of science stories for the year. Number five intrigues me for a couple reasons. Remember at the end, the middle, kind of the crux of Apollo 13, the movie, you know, right before the accident, they're talking about they're not pro they're not broadcasting their program because nobody cares because space flight has come, become blase and everybody's bored with it. It's not exciting. Then of course everybody paid attention after the disaster. It was kind of the fulcrum point of that whole movie because those two things happened one right after the other, not in real life, but in the movie, they put them together. Yeah. Artemis went to the moon this year. We've heard about the Artemis project for so long, and it was called a couple other things along the line. It actually happened. I even halfway follow this stuff and it just didn't seem like a big deal to us. I know to the scientific community it was for NASA. It was, it was like, Hey, we can still do this. Cause that's kind of what's been hung around their neck for the last 50 years is, Oh, we never went back to the moon. Well, now they've gone back to the moon. It didn't feel like as big a deal as it should have. Is that a fair way to put it? I think that's a fair way of putting it. We're not really breaking new ground, 
what we're doing is trying to create a long-term presence on the moon that will enable research, that will enable potential energy breakthroughs, that will enable potential better exploration of the solar system and so forth. So there, so when you're talking about Apollo, you were talking about getting to the moon as an achievement and beating the Russians and so forth. Now you're talking about sort of recreating some of the beats of that program, but in a way that is more consistent with a sustained presence on the moon and a sustained program of space exploration that has a, a much more defined purpose. Here's the thing. Um, we're going to talk about DART in a minute. We're going to talk about James Webb Telescope. We've talked a lot about the Mars rovers. One of the Mars rovers just went offline here over the holidays um, after, I think, five years on the service, which is a pretty good run for something on Mars, which is about as <laughs> as much of a hellscape as you can possibly think of as far as getting a rover to hang around. The argument is we've gotten so good with the probes and the other data. Do we really need a manned moon program right now? Because we pretty much know everything we need to know about the moon. How do you counter that argument with, yes, we need to put people on the moon because it's a jumping off point to other things. We can launch missions further out because that's further out to start with. What's the counter argument? Because it is true. Our probe technology is getting really dang good now. Why do we need manned space flight off planet? Um. Mainly, there are a lot of arguments. The one I always fall back to is humans are capable of responding in a way that robots are not. We're capable of being innovative. We're capable of seeing beyond the immediate moment where, you know, the best results we're getting from research these days are humans and computers sort of working together because computers can do calculations very fast and sometimes see things because of that that humans can't. But our ability to think intuitively, to think non-logically, to make leaps and connections that a computer cannot is our greatest strength and something you definitely need on a program like this. One more vaccine note, the bivalent vaccines. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I saw almost no coverage of this. Now, I know it got covered under other names because they talk about the quote unquote new COVID vaccines. But you've got this all the way up at number four on your list, and I hardly heard it talked about at all. Yeah, so the bivalent vaccines, um, the initial vaccines inoculated against the spike protein, but that mutated in Delta and Omicron. The new vaccine has two different strains of the spike protein, and that seems to stimulate a bit of a broad response. What we're hoping for is a vaccine that stimulates the immune system to respond to any variant of COVID. Now, there was a very early result published yesterday that showed that the bivalent vaccines are actually not only effective against Omicron and so forth, but are actually effective against this, I think it's XBB, this new variant that has emerged and is taking over in terms of preventing hospitalization and death. I'm kind of, you, but you hit on a good point. I'm kind of disappointed that the administration has not been hitting this point very hard. I realize that they're afraid of stimulating partisan backlash and so forth, but this really need, is a message that needs to be getting out there. I suspect we'll see uptake pick up if there's a surge in COVID and COVID cases, but the effectiveness of this vaccine is very good. And the side effects are, you know, if you've already had the vaccine, they're, they're pretty minimal. And so um, I think this is something that we should be pushing uh, a, a lot harder to deal with COVID. We're still losing, a lot of people think COVID's over. We're still losing 3,000 people to COVID a week. You know, I granted mostly, seniors but you know their lives matter too 
And I think this is something that we need to be uh, emphasizing a lot more with the bivalent vaccines. And one of those things where I think, you know, Joe Biden's decline as a communicator is, is hurting his administration because I think, if, you know, the Joe Biden of 10, 20 years ago would have been much better able to communicate the importance of this issue than he is now. I mean, I don't buy these ideas that he's senile or anything like that, but he can't communicate the way he used to uh, 10, 20 years ago. And I think if he could, that would be a big help towards getting people to t take these up. Now, the Biden administration did take out. Now they're looking at restricting travel from China again. China seems to be having yet another outbreak. This goes to the point, though, because we know we can't trust their data. We can't trust anything they say about COVID, frankly. I, I don't want to rehash that whole debate. But no, you can't trust anything the CCP-controlled China tells you about anything. It's trust but verify. The thing about that is their vaccines didn't work. And that's why this is going on. It's not just that they lied about it and covered it up and they boarded people into their homes. Their vaccines didn't work at all. And that's why they're seeing these spikes and these sorts of things. They have to open up because their economy is getting ready to crash if they don't. And it's just showing that their stuff didn't work correctly, whereas ours did. The numbers don't lie in this particular instance, do they? No, the Sinovac vaccine was initially effective, but as the virus has changed, it's basically lost effectiveness. In fact, there are many countries like Singapore that if you've had the, the Sinovac, they don't regard you as vaccinated at all. What's What was really telling to me early on in the pandemic was that Taiwan, Vietnam, Singapore, these countries, Japan, these countries shut down travel to China immediately. And, it, and some internal emails got out that basically said, we don't trust them. We're tired of their stuff coming to our shores. We're cutting this off before it becomes a problem. And those countries had very low rates of COVID in the initial outbreak and uh, and did quite well with their response because they knew that you could not trust the CCP. I mean, you just can't. Um, I think um, uh, limiting travel to China and testing people who are getting off planes is very well justified right now because we it is the source right now of one of the biggest outbreaks that's going on right now. We do have outbreaks going on in this country, but they're still at a moderate level. And I think we want to kind of restrict that, especially because with the outbreak that's going on in China, with the low resistance they have because they did not have an effective vaccine, the possibility of a new variant emerging is very high. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay. How about the outbreak that wasn't, although it was serious for the people that had to suffer through it, monkeypox. Um, some of the media were trying to build that up, no doubt, into the next big thing. It wasn't. It was pretty much capped off the way you would expect a public health response that was halfway well managed to be managed. This is a very different illness, of course. It has some very specific contact criteria for spreading, unlike COVID, where you know, we're still not completely sure all the ins and outs of how that spreads. This one, we knew how it spread. They got a hold of it quick. It was not a pandemic. Uh, it was contained quickly. You got it at number two for all the public health failings. This was a public health win. Yeah. Uh, monkeypox is not as infectious as COVID, as you said. Um, it requires very close contact, not necessarily sexual contact, but but pretty close contact. But we had about uh, 30,000 cases in the United States um, and about 20 deaths. There was a panic earlier this year that this was going to break out. It was going to be the new COVID. And certainly this seemed to spread a lot easier than monkeypox had in the future. And in Africa, you will get these occasional outbreaks where it's endemic. But by giving, giving lots of people vaccinations, by encouraging especially the gay community to restrict their behavior while this was still going, we are now down to single digit cases a day. 
And we will probably see this peter out within the next couple months. You know, it's it's really just bubbling away and it did not become endemic to the United States so far, knock on wood. And uh, I think this was exactly how you want to contain a pandemic. Now, COVID, even if we'd responded perfectly, it might not have been contained that way. It spread differently than we thought it did initially. It, it became a lot more infectious. It spread all over the world. But I think the response to monkeypox shows our public health institutions responding effectively uh, to a potential danger. How much is the word you just used important that we don't discuss when we're talking public health? You use the term community. That specific community was at the highest risk. They were also the most vocal about it. They were the most out in front about it. And they seemed to come together and deal with it in an expedient fashion. We didn't see a lot of community with the water public health stuff with COVID. We saw a fracturing of community. I, I'm struck that you use that word because I think there's a lesson there. Yeah, it's we need with COVID, we needed to think of ourselves as a global community. And to a large extent, we didn't. And there was political advantage to be had in that. There was financial advantage to be had in that. There was just skepticism that people have of that. Um, but on the other hand, you look at how many people stayed home. You look at how many people took the initial wave of the vaccine. You look at how many people took the precautions and wore masks and things like that. The vast majority of the public did what they could. I think COVID was just too infectious, too widespread, and our re initial response was a little too slow. And so it looks like it's going. It's becoming endemic. It looks like something we're going to have to deal with for good. Uh, but I think we responded. The public responded reasonably to that. I think we were failed a little bit by public health institutions, and especially failed by the People's Republic of China, which did a poor job of containing it and communicating early on when this might have been stamped out. Maybe it wouldn't have. This was uh, very different from the previous iterations of SARS and, Mer and Mars, but. Uh, certainly their opacity and lying in those early days made it harder. Yeah. How we deal with China and global affairs is going to be a theme for the rest of our lifetime. So we might as well just get used to that one. Okay. Scientists, I'm not going to call you bias, but I think there was some bias in your number one pick here. Um, if you go to ordinary-times.com, read this entire piece, his top 10 stories of the year in science from 2022. The graphic is the I, I think it's one of the best space graphics I've ever seen. The Pillars of Creation graphic from the James Webb Space Telescope. You've been talking about this thing for a couple of years. As long as I've known you, you've been writing about it. You were excited about it. You were happy that it worked. Now it's working. You say it's still warming up. They still haven't really cranked this thing to the full power of this battle star. <laughs> um, but go ahead. Have your joygasm over it. James Webb Space Telescope, your number one science story of 2022. Um. Part of that is a little bit of a repentance on my part. I spent many years critical of the program because the cost overruns and the delays and was very scared that it was not going to work and we'd have a $10 billion brick in space. But seeing the success, seeing it deliver everything that was promised and more, Crow has never tasted so delicious. Uh, this is really... You know, I sometimes say that the Hubble Space Telescope is one of the wonders of the modern world because of the way it has expanded our understanding of the universe, the way it has created these images that just make people's jaw drop of what's out there. And JDST is, is proving to be a worthy success where you have these beautiful images of nebulae and planets and so forth. But you also have these amazing discoveries being made in the first year alone, really the first six months. It's discovered the most distant galaxy we've ever seen, 
which has pushed the era which galaxies formed back a couple hundred million years and changed our understanding of how galaxies form. It's discovered water vapor around planets. It's discovered chemistry, chemical reactions going on in planetary atmospheres. And it, this is just the beginning. I think uh, by the time this mission is finished, our understanding of exoplanets, understanding of star formation, and our understanding of those first few hundred million years of the universe is going to be dramatically transformed. And again, maybe I'm biased because I love this stuff, but to me, that's the biggest science story of the year and will continue to be for the next few years. Dr. Michael Siegel, he's our go-to for all sorts of science-type things, and we have to believe the science, and he's a scientist, so we can believe everything he says. Also got a great YouTube channel that I've gotten to be on, although I killed his ratings. All his other videos were highly rated. No, we we, uh, we got a couple thousand views, so uh, you didn't quite kill my ratings. Yeah, the new one got 10,000. I can read. I can do a little bit of math. <laughs> um, Dr. Michael Siegel, let folks know where they can see you, follow you. We're going to post this piece, ordinary-times.com. You post usually every Thursday, but let people know where all your other stuff is too, my friend. Ordinary Times is the best gateway to find my stuff. I post my videos there, so that will link you to my YouTube channel. Uh, it links to my Twitter uh, feed. It links to anything I write or say on the internet. It's uh, just, and if you go to Ordinary Times, the worst thing that happens is you read a, one of the other great writers that we have there. We have a whole collection of really fantastic people there. So uh, that's the best way to find me. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, you do great work. The most appeared guest on this program, hoping to do that again next year. So if I don't see you between now and then, my friend, happy New Year's to you and yours. Looking to see what science does next year. Well, so am I. Thank you for having me on. It is always a pleasure to be on this show. You're the best, sir. Thank you very much. All right, to end the program, the last program of the year of our Lord 2022. Boy, God, did that go fast. Let's turn to some humor. Humorous Dave Barry, his traditional year in review piece. It's in the Washington Post I'm reading from. I'm just going to take the excerpt from the end. You can read the whole thing. We'll link to it. I think he makes a good point here. On the political front, this is Dave Barry. There's a refreshing new vibe in Washington as the two major parties finally pass the toxic nastiness of the midterm elections. Look forward to the new year, an opportunity to end the cynical partisan engagementship instead of seek common ground in a sincere effort to solve the problems that the American people actually care about, such as an epidemic of illegal drugs that we apparently ingested before writing this sentence. Because in reality, there is no new vibe in Washington. Washington is Groundhog Day with Bill Murray as Congress. The only change is that the Republicans have narrowly regained control of the House of Representatives, which means they can spend the next two years seeking revenge on the Democrats. For example, they could form a House Select Committee to investigate the House Select Committee that investigated January 6th. Of course, the Democrats still control the Senate, which means they could retaliate by forming a Senate Select Committee to investigate the House Select Committee, investigating the House Select Committee that investigated January 6th. Thus, the legislative branch of the federal government could spend the next two years probing itself like some kind of deranged proctologist. And if that isn't enough political assignment for you, we can also look forward to two soul-sucking years of build-up to the 2024 presidential election, which could very well wind up being the contest between, speaking of Groundhog Day, 
Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That's right. The voting public could face a choice between two men who are both, according to the polls, unpopular with more than half the voting public and who will both be older in 2024 than the Adirondack Mountains. That's the kind of quirky political scenario we sometimes wind up with in this country, thanks to a unique system of government created by our founding fathers who are rotating in their graves like hot dogs on an airport food grinder grill. So for the moment, the situation appears grim. Yet there are plenty of reasons to feel hopeful about the future, just to name a few. And there's a parenthetical here of note to editor, please insert some reason to feel hopeful if you can think of any. Dave Barry writing in the Washington Post. Thus it is with a feeling of guarded optimism that we as a nation reached the end of this disturbing year and thankfully enter the holiday season. The festivities are somewhat subdued as inflation forces consumers to cut back. According to the U.S. Commerce Department's Bureau of Conifier Statistics, the median household Christmas tree height, which last year was LeBron James, currently stands at Danny DeVito. But it's still the holidays, time when we gather with loved ones from near and far, assuming the ones from far were able to sell enough blood plasma to afford the airfare. And assuming they didn't fly southwest, that's just me adding that in there. So let's forget about the year we just went through. Let's give our loved ones a big old holiday hug and enjoy this moment. And on New Year's Eve, as we prepare nervously to face 2023, let's be sure to have a big calming bowl of ice water handy when the clock reaches midnight and we say happy new year they bury writing in the washington post we hope you have a good new year this last heard tell program of 2022 next time we see you it'll be the year of our lord 2023 god help us all wherever you and yours are we hope you're well we hope you're well fed we'll see you in the new year for more heard tell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.